Well, for the last two weeks, uh, I have been telling you that this message that God was bringing to Israel through Ezekiel, we've been going through the prophet Ezekiel, was a message of judgment. But up until this point, I haven't really answered that, like, why question. What have they done to deserve this? And so, you know, there have been vague references to Israel's idolatry. But this morning, we're going to get into some glimpses uh, and specifics of their unfaithfulness to God. Now, I've said this a few times over the last few weeks, because if you take this text, it's, it's a really challenging text to understand and interpret um, at first glance. The context between our world and the world of Ezekiel seems to be vastly different. You know, we're separated by almost 2,600 years. We're living in a different cultural and religious climate. But what I think we're going to see this morning, while specific to the time and place of Israel, I think it has ramifications into the 21st century, into the way in which we worship the Lord in a church environment. As the author of Ecclesiastes has said, right, there's nothing new under the sun. I've heard people say there are two things that are uh, maybe not eternal, but are, are lasting, right? One is the faithfulness of God, and the other is the sinfulness of man. I think they usually flip those because it gives the bad news first, but so there's nothing new under the sun. We continue to uh, fall prey to idolatry, so let's look at how Israel has, has uh, succumbed to this. So this morning, I'm going to look at three things. First, I want to read through Ezekiel chapter 8 in segments, and if you, uh, you know, want to turn there, uh, start turning there now, you're welcome to do so, but in there, we're going to see four specific scenes of idolatry that Ezekiel witnesses. Secondly, I want to, to briefly select some excerpts, just kind of verse here and there, from chapters 10 and 11 to display the ramifications of their behaviors, how what they did, this, this succumbing to idolatry, affected their physical and spiritual lives. And lastly, as we typically do try to understand these themes, how does it relate to our lives? What might the Bible be trying to, the Lord be trying to communicate to us through His Word? Now, just a side note, jump into the text. The, focused, the focus on this, this content this morning is on the concept of idolatry. And when we think about idolatry, typically we understand it as a failure to love God rightly. We think about this vertical relationship with God, and while the language, that, that is the language of the text that we're going to be examining, right, it's going to be talking about Israel's religious unfaithfulness to God. I want to make sure that as we think about this, we aren't divorcing it from an understanding of injustice and oppression. Because too often in our world, and specifically in our modern world, in the modern church, we, we have a tendency to bifurcate these two themes, as if loving God was a primary concern in the text, and love of neighbor could be separated as like a secondary issue. But to the biblical authors, and in particular the prophets, these issues were inextricably linked. In fact, the Hebrew word for righteousness, tzaddik, what in our world we consider to be a spiritual issue, is the same word that is often also translated as one of the words for justice. Now, mishpat is another word for justice that you find, but sadiq can also be translated as justice, something that we often consider to be more of a social issue. So while the focus of our investigation this morning is upon kind of the spiritual idolatry, we should not disconnect it from the clear ramifications of injustice 
that was taking place in the nation of Israel as well. And just in case, you know, I'm going I'm to throw a couple of Bible verses. If you, in our text, if you want to go on your own time, kind of find these and look through these, that's fine. I'm not going to read them this morning. But uh, in this immediate context, there's four references to oppression, to injustice, to bloodshed linked with Israel's disobedience. So you can see in, in the prophet, even in Ezekiel, while we're looking at the spiritual component, there's a lot of this kind of tangible love of neighbor justice focus as well. And so those passages, if you're following or want to write them down, uh, chapter 7, verse 23, 8, chapter 8, verse 17, 9, 9, and 11, 7. So with all that said, let's jump into Ezekiel chapter 8. Um, I'll read the first six verses, and it's the first of the four scenes of unfaithfulness. Ezekiel 8, 1 to 6. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, On the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Uh, These passages speak, it's it's almost the exact same language of what we saw back, way back in chapter 1 in this vision of God's glory. Verse 3, he put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. There was the seed of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the visions that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations. So the opening verse Ezekiel gives us the date, the precise date that this happens, the fifth day of the sixth month of the sixth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. Just in case you, you know, are, are a nerd like me and want to know, the date of this vision is September 18th, 592 BC. How's that for precision? This would have been about 14 months following what we saw back, uh, I guess that was two weeks ago, in chapter one. But, and this was a really crucial time for the exiles. So this is one of the things that's great about Scripture, right? Corroborating itself with one another. Jeremiah 28 tells the story of Hananiah. Hananiah is listed as a false prophet, but many of Israel at the time, Judah at the time, did not want to believe that. But Hananiah has been prophesying that the oppression of the Babylonians was going to be short-lived. Right, so as, as I said a few weeks ago, the Babylonians had come and kind of taken some of the cream of the crop, so they've already been oppressing Israel But Hananiah predicted that within two years, the Lord would break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar over Israel, restore peace, and bring back those like pre-exiled people. Now, the vision that Ezekiel is encountering right here would have corresponded with about the end of that two-year time period that Hananiah had predicted. The elders were were probably gathering around. It says that that he was in his home with the elders around him, and they were probably hoping for some good news. Like, all right, you know, hopefully Hananiah is correct, but uh, they're going to get 
pretty much precisely the opposite. Now, the Spirit takes him again. Ezekiel doesn't face plant the way that we saw back in chapter 1 uh, two weeks ago, but it's still the Spirit, the agency of the Spirit that lifts him up, directs him, takes him where he wants to go, and he finds himself at the outer north gate of the city of Jerusalem. And there he sees a statue which is described as an image of jealousy. Now, the text doesn't give us any description of what that image of jealousy is, but if we kind of, again, use archaeological evidence to figure out what some of the other practices of this region or time, this statue was most likely an idol of a human being, likely the Canaanite goddess Asherah. If you've read through the Old Testament, if you've been following along in the Bible reading plan, you've probably encountered the name Asherah a number of times. And the rationale for this idol was likely meant to be an amulet to guard the city. And and I think this is reinforced with its location. This is the north gate. Most of Israel's enemies, when they were coming against Israel, would approach from the north. So I think this statue was believed by the Israelite people, the nation of Judah. Sorry, I'm all over the place. They were a split tribe. I'm just going to say Israel for the, the sake of clarity. The statue was meant to be a relic of protection for Israel against her enemies, right? They're trusting in this image, this statue here. But verse 3 tells us that this image provokes God to jealousy, God will not share his worship with anything or anyone else or worship of him. And the Lord then tells Ezekiel that he's going to see worse things. So I'm going to be putting some, some of these themes that we see on the screen. And so what we have here is we see that this takes place in a public area in the city, and it's a statue of a female deity, likely Canaanite. Let's move on to the next scene. Ezekiel 8, 7 to 13. This is vision two. Well, same vision, scene two, we'll say. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast, the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He also said to me, You will still see greater, or you will see still greater abominations that they commit. So here we have another scene, 70 elders of Israel offering incense to animal figures in a secret chamber in the court of the temple. Commentators have suggested that this is an Egyptian practice meant to ward off the the dangers and demonic forces around them. One of the surprising things in this text that I think would have raised some eyebrows is the name Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, included in these rituals, because Shaphan, probably pronouncing that wrong, but Shaphan was one of the influential figures in the religious reform of Josiah a few generations before, 
Josiah was one of the few good kings, and they found the law of the temple. This was also during the, the prophecy of Jeremiah, and uh, they, were, they kind of came back to the Lord in that, and, and Shaphan, Shaphan, whatever, was, was one of these individuals. And, and so, this would have raised some eyebrows to displayed how far Israel had strayed, right, from this family lineage that had, you know, that this righteous family had succumbed also to these idolatrous practices. And the justification can be found in verse 12, that they believe the Lord doesn't see. They think they can keep their practices secret from God. But God does see, contradicting their belief. And I think there's a great irony here, because the purpose of their activity is to ward off danger to be a source of protection for them, but their very acts are what's driving the Lord, the the one who is their protector, away. Once again, the scene ends with God saying, worse is still to come. So, let's put some more themes on the screen. We've got some elders, people of influence, men of power as the guilty parties. They are burning incense to these creatures in the temple courts, an Egyptian practice. All right, next two verses, Ezekiel 8, 14 and 15. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. So now Ezekiel is at the north gate of the temple, you notice they're kind of moving their way from the outskirts of the city to the center of the temple. He sees women weeping for Tammuz. Now, Tammuz, this was a Babylonian ritual marking the death and descent of one of their gods, Demuzi, to the underworld. And, and he would later return, experiencing kind of a sort of resurrection. And the goal of this was to, it, it paralleled, this ritual paralleled the annual rhythm for nature. Now, I was thinking, I'm, most of us probably aren't really familiar with Babylonian mythology, maybe a little bit more familiar with like Greek mythology. So, if you've ever heard of the, the goddess Persephone, right, who goes, who, who's, you know, Hades falls in love with her and takes her down to the underworld, and she's allowed in the spring to kind of come by, back up, and it's meant to illustrate the, that, that uh, um, rhythms of, of, you know, winter, the desolation of winter, and then coming back in the spring. That's kind of what this was in the Babylonians. There are some commentators who suggest that ritual prostitution may have also been a part of this practice, meant to promote agricultural fertility. And at the end, God says, as the formula, right, worse is coming. So, we'll recap here, add some words, right? We see women this time engaging in it for a male deity who happens to be Babylonian. Let's move on to the final scene, Ezekiel 8, 16 to 18. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, worshiping the sun towards the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger. There's a little nugget of injustice there. Behold, they put the branch in their nose, therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity, and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. 
In this last scene, 25 men turning their backs. I mean, imagine that, turning their backs to the temple to worship, i.e. bow down, lay prostrate before the sun. Instead of bowing down before the Lord, they're turning their back to Him. So again, we see men in the central area, in the temple, worshiping a a, a stellar body, a heavenly, I was going to put heavenly body, but I don't want us to confuse it with like angelic forces, right? A star, the, the sun. Now, here's something that I find interesting that I think is important in these four scenes that we see. We find that their idolatry is far reaching. Notice these words that are on the screen. It covers just about all the different options, right? From common places to the center of the temple. We have both men and women participating, worshiping deities from a a variety of cultures, Canaanite, Egyptian, Babylonians. They've kind of just taken, if you've ever taken like a a college course on uh, religious studies, like one of the key words they use is syncretism. This is syncretism. They have kind of infused their worship with all these other pagan nations around them. And those false gods take many forms. Female, there's some that are creatures, there's male, even the stars of the heavens. In the words of one commentator, he says, quote, this is a unified, universalized religion, the ultimate multi-faith worship service. From the Lord's perspective, however, the picture is one of abomination piled on abomination. God is not happy. And what follows in chapters 9 through 11 are a series of visions of judgments on Israel. In addition to these visions of judgment, something else very significant happens. We see God forsaking Israel, and it happens in a a progressive manner. It's not all right immediately. For the sake of conciseness, I'm going to read just a few of the passages. First one, chapter 10, verse 4, similar to chapter 9, verse 3, and it says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And what this is describing, right, it says that God's presence moves from the cherubim. Now, those cherubim are the figures that are on top, that have been carved on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? God is dwelling in the Holy of Holies, the the, the Ark of the Covenant, his his footstool. We had, you know, way back in, in, uh, under the reign of Solomon, when they, he dedicated the temple, we had this glory of God that fills this place, and God was known to be tangibly present there. But that presence moves out of the Holy of Holies, moves away from the, the Ark of the Covenant, and is filling the temple. It's departing that sacred room and, and resting on the threshold. Next movement is chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Now, now, now these aren't the same cherubim, Elsewhere in the passage, I didn't read it, but that kind of chariot of God that we saw in chapter 1 with the cherubim and all kinds of, you know, I was going to say goofy faces, but kind of odd faces, these weird animal-human hybrids, they physically arrive in the city. And so God's presence is moving from this temple courtyard to these literal cherubim. He's going back on his chariot, his throne, to prepare to carry his presence away. Right after that, in verse, chapter 10, verse 19, God and his throne moved to the east gate of the Lord's house. So you see, there, in the way that we went in these visions, kind of 
from the outskirts of the city more and more towards the center of the temple, now we see the reverse happening, that God's glory is departing from the inner of the temple to the outer of the temple to now kind of the, the gate of the temple. And finally, after some more visions of judgment in chapter 11, verse 23, it says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So God's glory moves from the city of Jerusalem to the mountains east of the city, right? the Mount of Olives, before be- departing the region altogether. And, and I think this whole encounter is just very tragic. It's supposed to be understood in a very tragic way. Judah saw, Israel saw, the temple as an amulet of protection. As long as God was with them, they were safe. And this common belief in the time that they lived, the ancient Near East, there was this belief that the city could not be captured unless the city's gods were either defeated or had abandoned the city. And that's precisely what we see here. God was not defeated, but he abandons the city. God's forsaken the city. He's forsaken the people that he loves. But they've continued to forsake him. They've continued to act unfaithfully towards him. They took his presence, they took his covenant for granted. And his departure is is preparation for the eventual fall of Jerusalem and and the the real significant exile by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. I think it's important to sit in these times of recognizing God's wrath and not jump too quickly out of them. But God is good, and one of the things that he does time and time again that we see that when there is judgment, he shares hope. So before finally departing to the eastern mountain range, God says this. This is Ezekiel eleven seventeen to 20, and we'll unpack this a little bit more because he restates it later, I don't know, like three or four weeks from now. But it says this, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. So in some sense, he's saying, like, this is going to be painful. It's kind of like a cosmic timeout that Israel's getting for their unfaithfulness. But he's saying, I'm going to bring you back. And when they come there, God says, they will remove from it, from Jerusalem, from Israel, all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. God promises to bring restoration to their souls. God is doing, he will do a miraculous work in their lives. He is going to be the one to perform spiritual surgery, removing those hearts of stone, those hearts that have been hardened and calloused, that have rejected him, and he's going to transplant them with hearts of spirit, or excuse me, hearts of flesh that will honor him, that will obey him. Right? Obedience is the, is, is the goal here. It says that these new hearts will cause people to walk in his ways. So while the sin of the people have driven him away, God provides a ray of hope that this is not forever. Now, the last thing that I want to say before we turn to application is that this has some pretty lasting theological undertones as well. Because we saw 
right, we didn't look at the whole thing, but in, in chapters 9 through 11, we see this process where the glory of God is departing the temple. But something that's absent in the Scriptures, nowhere do we see that glory of God returning to the temple. Ezekiel 43, which we'll look at at the very end, uh, the final Sunday in July, um, does anticipate the return of God's glory, something that's picked up in um, the end of the book of Revelation. But we don't actually see it. It's It's a vision of a prophetic vision of what is to come. We don't actually ever see it happen. When Israel comes home, their physical exile is over, but you could argue they are still in spiritual exile. And I think this has some important foreshadowing when, as we read the New Testament, when we see Christ right, as the embodiment of God returning back to the temple, returning back to His place, and not necessarily the Holy of Holies. But again, God doesn't go back to the Holy of Holies uh, in the same way, in, uh, or is not bound by that in, um, uh, when, we, uh, when we get to Revelation either. But again, that's, that's, we'll get there a couple weeks. But I think that's, it's important that Israel's physical exile ended, but the spiritual exile continued. Let's take a look at what we've learned, what we've examined, and see how it might apply for us today. And I have two, two themes that are they're interconnected in this passage. What we saw from chapter 8 is that Israel has left Yahweh, that they have gone after every possible, every alternative God in their midst. And at first glance, it might seem like, you know, we don't have too much in common with Israel, right? Like, I haven't erected any statues as amulets of protection over our city or over my house. But I think you could make the argument that our, our nation does this. M- maybe not with a physical statue, but we worship the military-industrial complex, this, the arms race, if you will, speaking softly and carrying a big stick in the words of, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt. Right? Our, our national security is based on the size and prowess of our military and the vast arsenal of nuclear warheads that could probably destroy the world many times over. Now, if we don't have hope in the sovereignty of God, that, that, maybe you need that source of security. Where else is it going to come from? But for those who follow and trust in Christ, that should not be where our trust is, where our security is, I would argue. You know, we might not be burning incense to ward off demonic spirits, but I know of plenty of, of, sure, people in the culture, but even Christians who continue to follow their, you know, astrological horoscopes, understanding, you know, what's life going to be like today? This past week, um, it's a a pretty lengthy quote, um, but I think it's really good what he said. Sky Jitani, um, I talk about him all the time, Holy Post, but I follow his, uh, I, I subscribe to his daily devotional, and he said something in alignment. He's been going through the Psalms. But he said this, he said, quote, you may not be tempted to offer sacrifices and prayers to other deities, but when you face difficulties is your first instinct to turn to God. In the modern world, we have our own pantheon of lesser gods. They are the myriad of problem-solving strategies we give our time, money, and energy to because they promise us quick solutions to life's problems. In this way, he says, we are no different than the ancient Israelites who offered sacrifices to Baal when they feared a bad harvest. In times of fear and scarcity, we desperately want a sense of control. We want certainty. So we turn away from the Lord 
and run towards false gods, the politicians, preachers, hucksters, and charlatans, promising us a guaranteed outcome if we put our trust in them. Certainty is a very alluring mistress. I think this fits with our experiences. We worship the gods. I don't know why that came up. I'm sorry. We worship the gods of money, of power, of sex. At times, this is even disguised in this garb of religion. As Sky said, we want certainty, and so we might pursue faithless expressions of righteousness with a desire to force God's hand to bring blessing to us. I mean, even we saw this in Ezekiel's vision. There was worship taking place in the temple. It doesn't mean that it's true worship. Just because we find ourselves within the building of a church, just because we participate in a worship service, doesn't automatically indicate that we are worshiping God rightly. In the words of one commentator, which I said earlier, he said, the essence of idolatry is not so much denying the reality of God, but the relevance of God. I'm sure none of us in this room, most faithful Christians, even unfaithful Christians would say, we may not have doubted God's existence, but we have supplanted Him as the primary focus of our lives for created things, entertainment, our jobs, our bank accounts, our relationships, whatever it might be to give us a sense of security, to give us our sense of identity. And so I want to make sure that we're not so quick to distance ourselves from the idolatry of Israel, because I think we find ourselves falling in the same cycles. We we live in the, the New Testament era, the new covenant of Jesus, and so there's always hope God has promised that he won't leave or forsake us like he did Israel. But I do think that it's important. Again, I don't want to just jump right to that good news and just relieve that burden for us. I think it's important for us to take sin seriously. If you find out that you have a chronic illness, you don't just throw your hands up and be like, oh well, I guess I'll just live with it. You seek treatment. You want to pursue healing in your life. If you use the example of, of Tim Keller, uh, a couple conversations that I've had in the last few weeks. I mean, he passed away of cancer a few weeks ago, uh, but, but his earlier, the first bout of cancer that he had, he described it. He's like, it was not fun when the doctor told me that I had, I think he had thyroid cancer. But what kind of doctor would he have been if he just said like, oh, you got a clean bill of health. Go ahead, go do whatever you want. No, it was important for him to acknowledge that so that he could seek, seek treatment, he could seek healing. The, the example of Israel, that their sin was grave enough to drive the presence of God from their midst. And so I think it's important for us to acknowledge, even if we hold fast that God's not going to leave or forsake us, that God is a God of judgment. When defining his character to Moses in Exodus 34, he describes himself as slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's slow to respond to judgment. He is patient but he doesn't wait forever, right? It assuages our conscience when we jump to the other parts that showcase his mercy triumphing over judgment. You know, that I, I do think God is merciful and his mercy is far greater than his judgment, but I don't want to skip over that reality too quickly. You know, Paul addressed this when, in the Christians in Ephesus. Ephesians 4.30, he said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I think it's important that we, we should not 
live in a way that tolerates our own sinfulness, that we can just, you know, Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. You know, we just want to lavish in the grace of God. All right, God's going to forgive me anyway. It doesn't matter what I do. I mean, yeah, yes, that's true that God is going to forgive us when we're in Jesus. That's, that's a terrible, terrible conclusion to come to. We don't want to drive that presence of the Spirit from us, grieving the Holy Spirit. And so I, I would encourage us. I know there's been a lot of bleakness the last few weeks. Hopefully next week I'm going to bring, we'll bring some, some more hope of, uh, of God's goodness and kind of that, that foreshadowing of what God's going to do. But as we go about our lives, I want us to learn from the lessons of the Hebrew people. Inventory your life. See where there might be false expressions of spirituality. False expressions where you're taking that security in something that's not God. And instead, turn to the living God, trusting in Him and Him alone. So here, I have just two questions again this week for us. The first is this. What is that source of security? I like the way that Sky put it, that when life becomes difficult, what is the first place that you turn to? I'll confess, for me, it's not usually prayer. should be, but I find myself going to, you know, problem-solving self-reliance, whatever it might be. Second thing is this, um, and I know this might be uncomfortable, it's definitely uncomfortable in our age, but does your picture of God have room for a God of wrath and judgment? Thinking through what might be some mental or emotional barriers that might be standing in the way of receiving that, because again, I, we want to read the full, we don't want to cherry-pick passages. And like I said, I, I, you know, that, that passage, Exodus 34, God's showing, kind of exp- expressing to Moses his character, he says things, you know, like holding people accountable, holding fast to, to judgment on sin for the third and fourth generation, but then showing love to thousands. So again, I think there is a disproportionate of judgment and mercy, uh, but I want to make sure that we don't just ignore it. It's not negligible in that regard. So anyway, what that might look like to, to think about that and think about what, what wrath and injustice and judgment looks like. So anyway, let's pray and then we'll close out our service. Lord, as we read passages like this, I hope that it is sobering to us, that we see that um, there have been places where people have failed, and it's easy to, to look back with hindsight, and you know, whether it be the Israelites or the disciples, and just scoff. How could they? It's so obvious. But Lord, I find that when I truly look inside myself, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to their waywardness, because I do it all the time. And so, God, as you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, may we not grieve that Spirit, but may that Spirit provide uh, uh, illumination, conviction of the places where we're wandering from the ways that we ought to worship you. And may we heed those. May we not harden our hearts, but that we would have those hearts of flesh that you have promised, God to be sensitive and compassionate and willing to change ourselves for your glory's sake. Because as, we, as I said earlier, we don't live in a democracy. We don't get to decide and choose our own adventure, but we live under the authority of your good rule. May we not strive from that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.